This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Ideas Festival, April 29th to May 6th, online and in Seattle. There had been rumors that there was a whale buried on a mountain uh, not too far from Camas, Washington. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 in Crosscut. Mossback's Northwest, in case you wondered, is a fascinating look at the history of the most interesting place on Earth. I'm Stephen Haig. I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're talking about the case of the pickled orca. If you haven't seen the video I suggest you pause a minute, stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. And we'll see you after you do that. In 1931, a strange creature was spotted in the Columbia River off Portland, Oregon. People debated what it was. It was very unusual. Was it a giant fish, a whale, a miniature leviathan? Crowds flocked to see it offshore. Hot dog and popcorn stands sprouted. The atmosphere was festive. Portlanders even gave the critter a name, Ethelbert. Just what was Ethelbert? And what was it doing there? Okay, Canute, the case of the pickled orca, even saying that makes me cringe because it makes me think that some giant wrong was done here. You know, it's a fascinating story to me and I think to a lot of people. The, there's a great interest in our orca populations uh, and uh, what they mean as a symbol in the Pacific Northwest. And this was kind of a bizarre episode and I use the term case of the pickled orca kind of to make it sound a little bit like an Agatha Christie or a, a, you know, a crime novel because, in fact, there is a murder involved and uh, a, a kind of crime. And certainly one could argue, um, you know, a, a crime against wildlife. But it's a, it's a chapter that's kind of obscure that most people don't know about. Now, I've talked about it once before in an earlier podcast about um, sea monsters in the Pacific Northwest because we were discussing how sometimes what people see as a sea monster is actually just something they don't recognize what kind of animal it is. And, um, and these sort of mysterious sightings of whales being in places that are unexpected um, get made from time to time, and people speculate about it. So set the stage for this. A... A creature showed up off of Portland, not too far from uh, Jansen Beach, in a slough there, and it was frolicking around, and it was, um, and people didn't really know what it was, and uh, this, it was very unusual to see a whale-like <laughs> critter that far up the Columbia River. So that's a hundred miles, that's, yeah, at least, at least from... hundred miles up the Columbia, right. And, of course, back in the 1930s, the people who were probably most familiar with um, orcas were uh, people who had been or were still in the whaling industry. And they were perceived as uh, oh, kind of like sharks. They were a nuisance. 
Um, they well, were, fishermen didn't like them for sure because they viewed them as viewed orcas anyway as a competitor a for fish. Exactly, and uh, and 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 the orcas weren't really understood. I mean, the, they were called blackfish. And so a newspaper columnist named Jimmy McCool wrote an article about this frolicking uh, creature. Was that his real name, uh, columnist you know, Jimmy McCool? That was it what he wrote under, I know, I know. And, and it, he, at first he was referred to as uh, Jimmy McCool's whale. Well, people flocked to the slough to watch this um, orca um, uh, swimming around. It was a terribly polluted area. A lot of Portland sewage was getting pumped into this area, so it wasn't a very healthy place for any, oh, any critter to swim. But the, uh, hot dog stands and, and vendors began setting up for the crowds that came to this and became, you know, sort of a, a, a circus almost. And the newspaper, you know, people floated other names for this whale. They didn't know if it was a male or female. Of course, they didn't 100% know that it was uh, what we call a killer whale or an orca. Uh, Moby Mary was one of the names they came up with. Oswald, uh, Egbert. Somehow, it got dubbed Ethelbert, and that's the name that stuck, and that became Ethelbert the Whale. Sea creatures sometimes go off course. They may be exploring or lost. And when they are seen by people, they can cause a scene. And the people of Portland, um, you know, were really enjoying this, this thing. It was almost like a pet. And in those days, People didn't name orcas. I mean, there were some examples in the 1800s of whalers in Australia that named, gave orcas names. There was a particular place where orcas would chase whales into a shallow bay and make it easy for the whalers to work. So there was like a symbiotic relationship there. And those orcas were named. <clears throat> and of course, Moby Dick, you know, sometimes whales would get a name. So what happened to Ethelbert? What? So Ethelbert began to show signs of having some um, sores on its body, um, the polluted water. And, of course, orcas aren't really meant to spend their lives in fresh water. And um, so people decided um, they, were, they were of several minds. So you had one contingent that wanted to capture the whale, put it in a tank, and exhibit it. You had other people who wanted to shoot it, kill it, and there were two justifications for that. One was to put it out of its misery. The feeling was um, Ethelbert is suffering, and the kindest thing to do would be to, to shoot it. Um, and then there was another group that wanted to kill it and put it on display. Instead of a live display, they wanted to um, turn the orca into a sideshow, a carnival type thing. How old was, or how big was this, this uh, whale? Um, Ethelbert was a small. It was a young, a young, as it turned out, a young female, um, maybe about 11 feet long. And it had clearly gotten separated from its pod. Um, of course, in those days, nobody really knew much about pods or 
the diet of killer whales. I mean, they knew that they would go after fish or uh, that kind of thing. They, you know, they were an apex predator out in the wild, but nobody really knew the culture of orcas at that point. Um, well, a man who had been in the whaling business and his son went out with, um, they made a couple of harpoons and they went out and killed Ethelbert. Yikes. And then some other guys got to the body first and brought it to shore. And then there was an argument over who owned the body of the killer whale. There was an argument over whether these guys had broken the law or not. And this turned into a multi-year uh, um, multi conflict, basically, mostly a legal conflict. It turned out there weren't any laws that prohibited killing a whale. There were no inland <laughs> whale laws. And... Um, and uh, but they they paid a fine uh, for um, for it, and eventually the the Lassards, the father and son who killed the whale, eventually they ended up with custody of the body. I understand the case went all the way to the Oregon Supreme Court. The ownership dispute. Yes, it did, and. Uh, in the meantime, before the body was uh, the settlement of the ownership, it was embalmed, essentially. They got, um, you know, essentially all the embalming fluid in Portland together. A, a container was made, a, 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 you know, essentially a steel coffin. And the whale was put in there with all the uh, embalming fluid. And, uh, and then once the debate was resolved, the Lassards got the got the whale it went through a there was a short period in the 30s and 40s where it, it was displayed a few times at local festivals and that kind of thing um, but eventually it just disappeared disappears out of the headlines disappears out of history um, people lose track of whatever happened to Ethelbert um, there's a real the killing of the orca really upset people. I mean, th there was a newspaper that said the Lassards were the two, you know, cruelest men on earth. Um, you know, people were, many people were really outraged about it. Um, you know, other people, you know, especially people who'd been in whaling were kind of, you know, so what, <laughs> you know. But there was a lot of curiosity. And so it's just it's very interesting to think that, you know, in the 1930s, there was so little known or understood or whatever. Whereas now we give orcas names, we track them, we photograph them, we keep track of every baby they have or don't have. We look at their diets, we study them. It's a whole different world now. They were there was a lot unknown about killer whales up into the 70s and 80s, really. Yeah, it was it, it was really much later that um, that they became a, a subject of serious study, both uh, both in British Columbia uh, and of capture, particularly here in Wa in Washington State. So, what happened finally to Ethelbert? So, don't tell me she's still around. <laughs> well, in a manner of speaking, I suppose she is. So, Ethelbert disappears. Uh, nobody really thinks about it, except there was a guy who worked for the Clark County Property Department, and um, 
there had been rumors that there was a whale buried on a mountain uh, not too far from Camas, Washington. And this guy looked at property records to see if he could get some clue. And he found a piece of property that had been owned by the Lassards and since sold. And they had owned it for quite some time. And in it, there was a provision that the new owners um, would be paid a certain amount of money every month for um, the storage of a fish, which <laughs> seemed like a very odd thing to show up in property records. So this guy zeroed in, and he and his daughter went out looking one day in the general area of this property, and they stumbled across a big metal tank, and there was a, a preserved killer whale in the tank. So this was, uh, you know, we're talking now, this is in the late 60s, 1969, 1970. Uh, the Oregonian did a big article. AP did a big article about this pickled whale found on a mountaintop. Um, trees had grown up around where um, the body had been placed. Um, I mean, clearly nobody, at that point, nobody had buried Ethelbert. Um, and sometime later, some... Um, guys came along and dug a hole and buried the whale. Do we know if, was Ethelbert uh, a member of the Southern Resident Killer Whales, or was it uh, a Biggs whale? Uh, was it a transient? Nobody knows. Um, but, but there's a potential we could find out. This is one of the interesting things in talking with um, uh, Jason Colby, uh, who has written a book about killer whales. He's a professor up at, in Victoria knows a tremendous amount about uh, about them. There was a rumor that there was this whale up on top of this mountain, and apparently it was suggested that over the years before uh, Ethelbert was buried that high school kids would go up there. I don't know whether they'd have keggers or <laughs> whatever, but they would go up and, and see the whale. So, you know, apparently there was, it was somewhat known in the local community at, at some point. And there's also a suggestion that maybe some uh, people had taken some of Ethelbert's teeth as souvenirs. Mm. And the whale experts I talked to said, well, those teeth would be very interesting now. If they could verify, if they could get a hold of one of those, it would be valuable because at least they could probably tell what... Ethelbert's diet was, and that might suggest what what community the orca belonged to. So it is possible that they could, uh, you know, find out some ancestry information from the DNA and whatnot. So yeah, if anybody out there knows of an Ethelbert tooth belonging to somebody who went to high school in Washougal or Camas, Washington or Portland. Um, there might be some scientific value in learning more about who poor Ethelbert was. We'll be right back after this message. Are you nerdy by nature? Do you get thirsty for thinkers? The Crosscut Ideas Festival is returning to Seattle April 29th to May 6th with fresh conversations to quench your curiosity. We'll explore issues and innovations in science, health, equity, and politics, like wokeness in America, 
spiritual prescriptions for mental health, the heavy hand of the Supreme Court, and the rise of AI. Join Michael Barbaro, Audie Cornish, Eric Holder, Deepak Chopra, Ibram X. Kendi, Andrew Yang, and more. Tickets at crosscut.com festival. You mentioned it was the first time that we've named uh, a killer whale, at least. Um, but it brings to mind the story of Namu, uh, another whale that was uh, named. Right. Yeah, so we actually did a Mossbacks Northwest episode on Namu um, back in, I think, season one. It was an early season. We went over to the Burke Museum where they have Namu's skull. Uh, so Namu was um, not one of the very first killer whales that was captured um, up in Canada, brought here to Seattle, and uh, exhibited in a pen on the waterfront. Um, as a as a kid, I went down and saw poor Namu uh, was there, um, basically just kind of coming up taking a breath and sinking and, you know, it wasn't like the kinds of spectacle things that you see today. Um, But it, you know, Namu became famous uh, briefly. They made a Hollywood movie about Namu. um, And this was a very, you know, exotic thing. But um, the captors of Namu began to capture other whales. Well, there was Shamu. Yeah, there were uh, there were a host of them. I mean, there were there were literally they captured scores of whales, right. uh, and um, at least one of them is still alive and in captivity, and that's Lolita in in Florida, and she was uh, captured up at Penn Cove, part of a a very infamous whale capture by uh, by Ted Griffin. Yeah, right, and that and, was, that was the <clears throat> wholesale uh, rounding up of of killer whales for carnival show purposes. Right. It was a commercial venture. It was to sell them to people who wanted to display them in marine marine shows. And and uh, and there were, you know, quite a number of whales that were killed in the process. It wasn't a benign thing by any means. It caused a tremendous amount of outrage uh, in the community. And eventually, you know, such things were, were made illegal. Um, but it also, and Jason Colby, you know, says that it was really that period, uh, this would be the mid-1960s where NAMU was captured and other killer whales were being captured, that scientists really for the first time could study uh, a live whale or they could uh, do a necropsy on a, on a dead whale and really begin to understand what they were, how they functioned, uh, understand the biology, and eventually, uh, you know, people were exceedingly interested in in the culture of the whales and the fact that these pods have different diets, they have different travel patterns, they have different um, rituals and and things that they go through. There's a place up in uh, in Canada, Vancouver Island, I believe, where they come and and ritually scrape their bellies <laughs> on, the, on a particular. Uh, uh, low tide place. Um, so we now have a much greater understanding. Well, it's an interesting and cruel irony that the intelligence and sophistication of these um, animals were only discovered after they were uh, captured and, you know, trained to do tricks. 
Yeah, and, you know, the relationship prior to that um, was obviously rough. You mentioned, uh, you know, fishermen considered them competitors. Um, and one, one reason for that, even kind of here in Puget Sound, is that whales would sometimes go up salmon spawning rivers, you know, to, to um, get fish that were, <laughs> that were abundant. And um, there was this, um, you know, this sense that they, they needed to be put down. So after Namu died and was uh, autopsied. Namu uh, lasted for how long? Oh, in, in captivity? captivity, it was only about a year. Wow. It was very brief. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, you know, the filth in Elliott Bay is part of the reason there was sewage and whatnot. So it was in this pen, but it was sort of like Ethelbert. It was in a very unhealthy environment from many perspectives. So, you know, while it was turned kind of made a hero in this movie and and everything it was a very you know short uh, um, captivity full of suffering but when they did the autopsy on uh, namu um they found a bullet you know so you know fishermen had been shooting at these whales to you know get them away from their fish have there been other examples of whales killer whales uh, in the Northwest, swimming up rivers or or being where one doesn't usually see them. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, and if I I would never have known this unless I, until I started looking for it after I heard about Ethelbert. So there is more than one account in newspapers of whales, sometimes more than one, um, coming up rivers. Uh, I found at least two examples in, in the Snohomish. Uh, river, and uh, and then one example that I would have thought would be more sort of legendary, but it it actually happened. There were accounts in both uh, daily newspapers about it. Uh, a so-called blackfish swam through the locks. It followed a boat into the locks, and then swam into Salmon Bay and was there in the ship canal, and it was kind of exploring around. It was diving under houseboats and. And that kind of thing. And, um, you know, people were, you know, completely fascinated by this well, visitor. There, there's an attraction. Can you imagine uh, a killer whale waiting for the locked doors to open along the line of, <coughs> lineup of boats and then being penned in the, uh, the locks while the uh, transfer is, is done? Well, and that's essentially how that whale got out. It followed a boat back in and got out that way. And just in the nick of time, too, because... There were a pair of guys who heard about it, and one of them had a harpoon gun mounted on a speedboat, and they came racing over to uh, shoot this whale, and it got out of the locks just in time. And what year was this? Early 40s. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So the circus around... The circus-like atmosphere around Ethelbert and certainly Namu is a foreshadowing about of what's to come, the capture of orcas for carnival-like purposes, right? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing because the experience with Ethelbert didn't stimulate the idea of going and capturing orcas. But as you say, it foreshadows the Namu experience in that it was an orca that was named, which was highly unusual, certainly outside of indigenous circles. 
Um, Namu originally was caught up in some salmon nets. Is that right? Of of a of a, a fisherman and then sold to Ted Griffin. Uh, yes, yes, essentially, yes. It was an it was an inadvertent capture that somebody was able to turn into a commercial venture. So with Ethelbert, it be, you know the whale becomes a spectacle. People decide to cash in on it. There's a strategy to capture it. It ends up ending tragically for the whale, who is swimming in a place that is not healthy for it. Uh, the public is divided between those people who want to capture the whale and those who simply want to watch it frolic in, in the Columbia River. <laughs> um, so all of the problems that were raised in the Namu era, where essentially the capture of killer whales was being industrialized, done on a mass scale where the more whales you could capture, the better because there was a market for them. And they figured out ways of keeping them alive until they could transfer them from one place to another. Um, you know, Ethelbert is sort of all those features of human exploitation, human curiosity um, are present in that, in that earlier event, yet most people who know orca history don't know anything about Ethelbert. listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen and whatever platform you're listening on, Please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, Members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.